The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Day Show. And greetings. Happy Thursday. Welcome to the Steve Day Show here live on the Blaze on demand at CRTV. I am Steve Dace, Todd Erzin, Aaron McIntyre here with me as well. We would love it if you would join us. Let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Coming up a little bit later on. We're going to continue our freshman orientation week here on the Steve Day Show for our new audience at The Blaze. Theology Thursday next hour, we're going to take a look at the seven deadly worldviews, the worldviews that are most in contention for the worldview that established American exceptionalism in the first place. That's coming up a little bit later on. Also, later on in this hour, I had the opportunity to check out the new Gosnell movie yesterday. We'll talk about that and more, but we begin, as we always do, with a rundown of what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by democracy seems to be working pretty well these days in Afghanistan. Two Americans, including General Scott Miller, were wounded after a firefight broke out between their security forces and the freaking Taliban. The gunfight left Afghanistan's top police chief dead just days before elections take place in the region. Here's a brief rundown of recent leftist meltdowns. I'm just going to take them down. If you live here, if it's your property, that's what I That is my property. It is your property? Yes. Okay. This is... Oh, that's your property, too, though, huh? That's my neighbor's property. He's a gun owner. Oh, I'm a gun owner, too. I would watch... Be careful. If you guys shoot me over that, that would be great. That would be really, like, you know... This dude beat up Nevada GOP gubernatorial nominee Adam Laxalt's campaign manager. He was working as a tracker for a George Soros-linked group. Nancy Pelosi, ladies and gentlemen. I think that we owe the American people to be there for them, for, the, for their financial security, respecting the dignity and worth of every person in our country. And if there's some... Um, collateral damage for some others who do not share our view, well, so be it. Welcome to Twitter's non-existent community standards. Call me a hater. You know what they do. Call me an anti-Semite. Stop it. I'm anti-termite. And according to Twitter, Louis Theracon is more than welcome to continue using their platform to spew his anti-Semitic garbage. Remember this? When you see people like Ted Cruz getting chased out of restaurants by a mob. Oh, you're not going to use the mob word. Brooke Baldwin is here to explain. I don't want to be the word police. And that was not my intention. But I also believe in calling out talking points and to hear him bring that up i had to i had to say something Yay. oh by the way here's a handy running list of things you can't say on cnn and finally actresses kira knightley and Kristen bell say they won't allow their daughters to watch certain princess movies because patriarchy and that's what happened while we were away in two minutes 
or less. <laughs> Good Lord. All right, where to begin? Um, you know, let's just, like it says in my favorite, maybe my all-time favorite Rankin-Bass Christmas special, which those are coming out soon, by the way, gentlemen. It's only about 70 days until Christmas, okay? Uh, Countdown begins. Yes, it was the night before Christmas, all right? When approaching a tall piece of cheddar, best to start from the top. Okay, so let, let's go to Afghanistan. What are we doing? Todd, go. Isn't that the same question from like seven years ago? I mean, it's just kind of sitting there. We can dust it off any time and maybe officially answer it. I don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to be too cavalier about it. Um, but even the darkest of things ultimately do have a punchline sooner or later, and that punchline might be the thing that actually saves real lives and stops bleeding. So, yeah, this this is kind of becoming a joke, and this is from a guy who has publicly uh, said before multiple times, I supported uh, the original uh, effort there, uh, and I did so unapologetically, but you, we, we there has to be an end game. Uh, it's been 17 years. Do you remember what the original effort there was? Do you remember what it was? To kill Osama bin Laden. Was uh, that it? Well, and, and to depose whom? To, to, to remove Taliban. from power. Taliban, yeah. Who killed those people yesterday? The Taliban. Yeah. What did we say? What did we say on Monday, guys? Um, foreign policy can't be dogmatic. At what point are we going to realize, and I say we, people in the Pentagon realize the worldview difference in that part of the in, in that part of the world, um, I it doesn't seem to be getting that message does not seem to be getting through. No, well, in, in in this case, the president is giving the right speeches and talking points on this, and then he just turns around and the minute that the you know the Pentagon rattles its zipper, he he shows up, come hither like every other backstage groupie at a rock concert, and shows up and says, yeah, time to make Kandahar, uh, time to make Kandahar great again. Why? Do you know why? Well, I think I think ultimately they're still being there is an admission that you can't make it yes, great it again. I think it's simply because it was never great. Well, yeah, yes. and it well, and it can't. I th- but it it can't be great whether we're there or not. Yes. Either we're not there, right. And terrorism is flourishing, or there we're there ad infinitum, and we just in, in order to make sure the terrorists aren't flourishing either way though i think we're fighting terrorists i think that we need to simply come to terms with the fact that we and this is what the, nobody on either side of our political aisle and pretty much in the west anymore we have an existential enemy and we are going to be fighting them long term no matter what there's no little beer summit can that can take uh care of that and that's why it's going to become pretty damn handy that we're talking about worldview today steve um, because this is a fundamental existential worldview issue here's the thing we are we are in this foreign policy no man's land that we talked about ben sass being in in terms of domestic politics yesterday where he wants to go out and talk like bill crystal and then go back to the senate and vote like ted cruz and there's not a platform to build a base doing that because what happens is the bill crystal crowd the max boot crowd gets all excited hey this guy's gonna sell everybody out just like we we do and then they watch your voting record and like, well, wait a minute, this guy's an actual conservative. He's not one of us. And then what happens is the, the, the Trump cult crowd, and let's not forget, there is, the Trump cult still exists. 
It's just not nearly as ra rabid now that he's president. Um, and he's got wider support than when we just saw this phenomenon in the primary, the Cheeto Jesus phenomenon. But the Trump cult crowd thinks that uh, Sass is out there undermining the president's agenda, and he votes for it about 90%. In fact, Sass is more for the president's agenda than apparently the president seems to be a lot of days. But, but, but he has no base because he's trying to— he's, Ben Sass is trying to work within a world that does not exist. And, you know, one of the things we talked about on Monday is you have to realism over consequentialism. You have to accept the world for what it is. And if you want to change it, then you have to create tactics that create that change. Ben Sass is trying to act like he's a third party politician as a Republican. That's not going to work. And what will happen if he continues down this road, he's just going to alienate everybody. No one's going to trust him. He'll get, he's already being billed up as a rhino when he's got the second best voting record in the Senate, <clears throat> pardon me, next to Ted Cruz. And on the other hand, he keeps, he, he'll never win over the let's all work at CNN for the rest of our careers fake David Gergen crowd because he, he votes with, for Trump's stuff, which is what they really hate about Trump. See, Bill Kristol and those people, their, their issues with Trump are not the moral issues we're concerned about. It's that, and, what we, and that's what we've learned is when Trump, whenever Trump governs conservatively and they oppose him, you learn that their issue, real, that's the false objection. The issue is not that Trump's a profane douchebag ass. The issue is he's a profane douchebag ass who every now and then does stuff far more conservative than George W. Bush ever did. And that's, that's what the real offense is. In other words, uh, they, they're the real offense is you. Yes, you. that's right. They don't hate Trump. They hate you. They hate his base. They hate those of you that voted for him. And not even just the Trump cult crowd. Any of you that voted for him whatsoever thinking that there was a chance he might do something good because what's happened is the people, the crystals and the, and the boots of this world that ran this party for so long, there's only one group of people that hate more than Democrats. You folks watching shows like this, they hate your ever-living guts. That's what they hate about Trump. They hate his base. Well, the same thing we're doing is we're doing the same thing here with foreign policy. Choose. Either we're terraforming culture or we're going to do what the president said in Riyadh last year. Not our job to tell you how to live. If you cross us, we will bomb you back to the freaking stone age. We will bomb you back to when Muhammad was illiterate, which was his whole life. That's what we will do. Until then, we don't care. Not our place to tell you how to live. But choose one of them. Because if we're terraforming culture here, which is the neocon, bushy system, well, we're 17 years into this in Afghanistan now. It's 17 years this month, in fact. It's almost 17 years exactly. There's not one Christian church in Afghanistan. There are, there are fewer Christian churches in Afghanistan now than there were when the Taliban was in charge. So there's no religious freedom there. We still have the Taliban is able to take out high-ranking domestic infrastructure officers of the local provincial government. 17 years in, and, and we're the worst conquerors of, ever. And nearly one of our generals, too. Yes. We are the worst conquistadors of all time. We are the worst imperialists in the history of the planet. So pick one. Either we're going to terraform culture, or we're going to say... You know what? If you guys let the Taliban back in, we're going to turn this place into a freaking parking lot in five minutes. Period. Pick one. But we are trying to do, we're, Confucius say man who straddle fence for too long ends up with his nether regions caught in it and it hurts. And that's what our foreign policy is in the Middle East right now. What is it? Do you know what it is? No. I'd like it to be actually, I thought the president's speech in Riyadh last year was 
brilliant, right on the money, and I'd like it to be that, but we haven't really followed up on that. He, so he gives great speeches, and then what happens is when the Saudis turn around and try to, and, and try to push back on Al Jazeera and Qatar, Rex Tillerson, then the Secretary of State, sides with the Qatar lobbyists that are paying his corporatist buddies seven-figure salaries in D.C. And then when he says, we need to pull out of Afghanistan, enough people have died, he stands up there and gives a speech and says, well, the generals say we got we to gotta go and make Kandahar great again. Which is it? What are we doing here? Well, actually, I do have an answer. I, I do know what our foreign policy is it, it based on what they're doing, not what they're saying. And it, it goes back to what well, they know. And that's why we're there, that we have an existential enemy. It, they're, they're, for our foreign policy is they're trying to kill us, guys. They, they hate us to the point of wanting to kill us. That's the only, but they won't say that out loud. They won't identify really what the they is. And that's my point when I say we need an end game. We need an end game of saying what the truth is for starters. Other, otherwise, this wheel spinning will go on uh, infinitely. Now, we might have to— Then, one create, a, they, then create a Guantanamo Bay. Todd. Well, there's, and, that, right, and that's right. U.S. territory. But we can't do that because we don't even admit who and what the enemy. I agree. Yeah, yeah. do then, something. Then, create, then you create a Guantanamo Bay there, like we had in Cuba for years, and we say, you know what? We that's our land. And if if post Cuban Missile Crisis, if you try yet again to impose on us, we will make you rue the day your daddy met your mama. And then and then you know what? We don't care how many burkas you wear. We don't care if you put burkas on newborns. We don't give a rip. It's not our way of life. It's yours. Just don't get in the way of ours, because if you do, we got a fleet of B-52s 10 miles away, and we are going to bomb you back to before Muhammad met, met the angel Gabriel in a cave. That's what we're going to do. Then, then pick a strategy that, that, get, that defines what victory is. You can't pick a strategy if you will not honestly admit what the truth is. Their strategy, we just came away from eight uh, years of you know, saying, you know, if we just had a good jobs program, we could really clean things up over there. no. No, no. And and we've seen, I mean, remember your analysis of Donald Trump's uh, foreign policy speeches before he came president? More than any other speech, you're like, um, he just talked for five minutes. I have no idea what he said. We're, right. we're still living in that, even despite the speech that you loved very much from him, execution-wise, we don't have a fundamental belief of exactly what it is they are and what they are going to do to us. Because of progressivism and political correctness, we can't say that um, it, it, and on any level, Islam is inherently what it is and what it's showing itself to be. And again, we have to make this distinction all the time. Yes, not every single Muslim is a terrorist, but it's we've had this conversation over and over again. You look through their teachings, it is, um, it lends itself, and that's a really, really kind way to put it. It lends itself to what we see from the Taliban and what we just saw from the Taliban in the last 24 hours over and over and over again. Todd is absolutely right. We have to have an end game, but we can't have an end game until we admit what the enemy is and what the opponent is. And that, and we won't do that because we have a bunch of progressives, because progressives in their march through the institutions they took over the west points of the world as well yeah. and so we have a flawed we have we have J james mattis is mattis a bad, is a progressive mattis is a badass he's, he's a, a badass he's, but he's, he's a also a progressive yeah. that is the problem here yep. the fundamental worldview differences and again just one more thing if you are a progressive again we want to harp on this this is steve dace 101 uh week here on on the show if you are a progressive, you believe that human nature is basically good. So cultural terraforming, instead of just killing people if they cross us, cultural terraforming is actually um, the, the preferable route um, because you believe human nature is basically good. So if human nature is basically good, it can be made great again or good again or perfectible. And 
we're going to be getting into that later on today. As well. when, when a good buddy of mine ran for Congress a few years ago and asked me if I would give him some advice, you know, just privately help him out. And he had just hired this really respected consultant firm. And so I said, no, I'm not going to do that without their permission. Because here's what here's the worst thing that can happen for your candidacy is for you to take their advice nine to five every day, come home from dinner, be frustrated. And you call me up at eight o'clock at night and and I put a bug in your ear. I'm not there all day. I don't know what they're telling you. Okay. Plus, so, that's a dude code violation. Yeah, so, Just yeah. go all in, man. Yeah, so Pick it. unless you want – if they come to me, and then I'll, I'm, I'm happy to help if you think I can offer you any, anything as a friend. But you're better off – even if I think their advice sucks, you're better off taking their bad advice consistently than, having, than calling me at night and having me undermine everything they were trying to do during the course of the day. That's what we're doing here. At this point, I at this point I would if you forced me because I know that's our new favorite religion in America, false binary choice. America, we love that. So if you forced a false binary choice on me, gun to my kids' heads, choose. I would take. I'd rather do the progressive neocon terraforming cultural thing all in. Because and, and, and by the way, I don't think that has any chance of working. Yeah. Okay. Because I think it, I think human nature is not basically good. We government can't force people to be good. Government is the result of the fact people are not good. <laughs> all, right? all right, but I, we are better off doing what's wrong all the way through. We would have more success than we're having right now trying to yeah. walk, have a foot we're, in each of these camps. Where Which is it? Yeah, where you're, where you're trying to, to, to cultural terraform while you're terraform and say, hey, the West, we're not, we're not your enemies. We're, we're okay. You and know, your culture's as good as clear. ours? But you see that mountain that used to be there yesterday? Yeah, Moab just took that out. But we're your friends. <laughs> Everything's fine here. Yeah, you, you, our, you, our culture's not superior to yours, and yet we think we're going to help them establish a better culture. Do you yeah. know how that works? And I never will. Yeah, because what is zero times zero, gentlemen? What is zero times zero? It's inc- well, I thought it was zero, zero but they're trying yeah. to prove it's less than zero. Steve. They're trying to prove it identifies as 100. I don't so know. So we're going to skip over the leftist mob thing because that's evergreen. Evergreen! That's every day now. All right. Um, I want to go to the Farrakhan thing because it ties into what we talked about yep. yesterday at this time. So I think we need to have more of a conversation about the antitrust angle that we opened up in this discussion yesterday. And if you weren't here yesterday, the point was made, well, Aaron broached it, and then he kind of um, triggered uh, you know, my thought process to take it a step further because Todd and I are a little older than Aaron, and so we were around when Ma Bell was broken up for antitrust reasons. I don't think Aaron was even born yet because that was actually in the 80s when that happened. But think about the antitrust reasons Ma Bell was broken up for. Was Ma Bell determining who gets a phone number, Todd? Not to my knowledge. Yeah, I mean, when you went when you went to apply for a phone number, did Ma Bell say, you know what, your particular socioeconomic views are so offensive to us, we're not going to give you a phone number? Did, were they doing things like that? No, and if you had a number, were they determining like arbitrarily which calls yes. you got? And yes. Which calls you were they screen? Did they have an algorithm that screened the calls that you received, whether you got that call or not? Did they did they no. do anything like that? Did they determine what you could say, what their community standards were uh, on what you could say on said call? Was that determined? Yeah, let me let me check my cheat sheet for code words. No, there was nothing like that either. And yet we thought they were a, a an antitrust threat to the point that we broke them up. And 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 I don't remember, you know, I've, has there been one conservative group that's ever gone back in history and said that was a bad move and, you know, we should have, you know, not decentralized that utility. Can you think of, has that argument ever been waged? I, this, I haven't seen that particular white paper. Okay. We, so 
I, we, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you, but this 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 conversation we need. I don't know. We need like Ed Snowden on here or something because this goes this goes. I think way beyond just um, antitrust for a particular social media platform. As I brought up yesterday, Google. I mean Alphabet mm-hmm. and Amazon. They own a lot of the web uh, the, the web surface that, that that we see nowadays. And at the same time, the NSA. If you believe Edward Snowden. If you believe Edward Snowden, the NSA is using companies like Alphabet in order to spy on you. (laughs) So I don't know if we're ever going to be successful, even if we were able to broach antitrust or whatever uh, on on a legislative level. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we'd ever be successful because the NSA ain't going to want to break up these large platforms into smaller pieces as well. So it's What, uh, what Aaron's talking about. And I know you love these movies. Uh, this is fiction coming to life. These are the Frankenstein monsters, the real one, yeah. created by us uh, with good intentions yeah. along some lines. And here, and here they are, and they're owning us and controlling us. And we don't even, and we know that on some level, but we have no idea. We don't know what we don't know about how much uh, we are under their thumb. I, I think Alex Jones is a fraud and a fiend. I, won't, I wouldn't spend the salt in my tears political capital doing anything to defend him on any level. I think he's a fraudster. And if you send me links to Infowars or Gateway Pundit or PolitiFact or Snopes, we don't even acknowledge them as legitimate on on this show. They're kind of all bundled into the same pile of scam. But if we're going to say, if we're going to give these these tech giants that now have the sort of reach Ma Bell had, particularly in the case of Facebook, capturing data that Ma Bell never had, because that's the problem is when they're capturing this amount of data, the, your ability to create a competitor now is exceedingly limited. Remember the USFL, when Trump led that suit against the NFL for antitrust, they won the case, remember? They won that the NFL was a monopoly. They won the antitrust case. It's just the, the damages they received were only a dollar, and that's why the USFL folded. But they actually won the case on the principle that the NFL was an antitrust monopoly. They won the, they won the case. So here we're dealing with, with, with an entity that has such a, such a grip on data that it is simply not realistic that you could create a, a full-blown competitor yes. to them in the next year or two because they, can, they, have, they have a grip on the customer base, such a huge advantage over you. There, it's, not a fair, it's not a fair labor market or a fair competitive market. So on one hand, again, this, this is the, apparently going to be our theme today, no man's lands. So we're going to tell the social media giants on one hand that you can have editorial bias and commentary like a journalistic entity like CRTV or The Blaze or The New York Times, but, but face none of the, the, the libel or slander laws that, that we have to get insurance against, that we are up against, okay? You don't have to face, but you can have that power without any of the responsibility, and, on, and then on the other hand, we're going to let you actually have more control and sway over mass media and communication than Ma Bell had as a public utility before it was broken up for antitrust. That's, that's not a recipe of liberty and freedom. You can't let them tiptoe between the raindrops like well, that. Well, you need to echo yet again, and uh, I, won't, I, I would paraphrase it back, but when I said uh, there are uh, – the whole notion that they're a private company, they can do whatever they want. And I said, well, yes and no. You said, well, it's it, it, there's a difference between the people you have to serve and how you have to serve them. Yes. That is not, that's not even like some nuanced gray area. That is yep. so fundamental to what you're talking yeah, about. I mean, it, it, imagine if Ma Bell said, 
for, let's say that we're having this conversation 30 years ago. And Ma Bell said, Alex Jones can't have a phone number because he says racist, fraudulent, conspiratorial things that are bad for public consumption. But Louis Farrakhan can have a phone number that he can call you with with his racist, you know, fraud, scam, conspiracy things. That's that's kind of in the yeah. in the realm of what we're talking about here. And if we're going to set those kinds of precedents, I think we all know how this is going to end. Right. And this is and so you cannot have, again, force them to choose one. I don't believe they should have to carry content they don't want to carry. Just like I don't believe the New York Times should have to have a conservative columnist if it doesn't want one. And, and the Blaze and CRTV shouldn't have to hire a leftist if it doesn't want one. Okay? But, Amen. but because in, in exchange for those exemptions, so that we will then practice some form of good faith then for in exchange for that public exception to our conscience— we then can't slander people. We can't libel people. And when, when, when Facebook and Twitter are saying, your message is so offensive that we won't grant you the effect of a phone number, we won't air your political commercial, that, if they're not, if they're not a, a full-blown media entity like we have on the right and the left, then they're getting away with what amounts to lander and, slander and libel. Because you're letting them practice editorial comment without any editorial standards, okay? That's the very definition of yellow journalism, guys. Yeah, and you you got to get rid of this whole aspect of your business that is a dark web. You, you, I mean, Aaron talked about it all the time. Again, the fact that you have no real sense, no true sense of the degree to which you have succeeded or failed via the social media platform over how many years now, mm-hmm. That that that's fraud. That is fraud. They can't they, either they if they either they can't tell you, which is incompetence, or they won't tell you, um, which is lying, or that what they would tell you is a lie that they have in fact manipulated to be so. I, it's worse still. The rabbit hole just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah, the the rabbit hole. And I hate to keep harping on this, but say you break up uh, Facebook um, as violating antitrust laws. Um, how are how would a competitor then come to the forefront? Um, Google, completely different entity as well. That's why this conversation is not just about social media, not just about Facebook, but it is about the entirety of 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 the internet. Honestly, and I just don't see this. This needs to happen, but it it is a rabbit hole, and the further down the rabbit hole you go. Uh, the more you see where the power is and where it's going and who is using that, and which is why I brought up the NSA angle and why I don't think the government would have – our government currently construed would have any interest in trying to break up anything having to do with large data because or big data because it actually works in tandem with their purposes as well for – national security. I think we would all agree we are tired of the scourge of fake news, but you don't get to determine what is fake news without yourself being held accountable for whether you're guilty of fake news, right? So, you know, where you see a lot of other fake news as well is in in the, uh, the healthy lifestyle market. When you look at superfood labels, and you walk into one of these uh, superfood market stores and, and it'll say, hey, uh, check out how healthy this is. Well, turn around the, the packaging, look at the label, and you'll see something called supplemental facts. Um, and a lot of times you'll see that that superfood is made from extracts instead of real food. 
So with the goal of creating a real superfood this time that is specially designed to enhance your health and help you reach your full potential, a team of top physicians gathered to form Brickhouse Nutrition, and they'd like to introduce you to their new product, Field of Greens. It's a real superfood, really the first one, and the difference that sets it apart can be seen right on the bottle. If you look at the Nutrition Facts panel, you'll see no extracts there but real food. One scoop of Field of Greens has a full serving of real certified vegan, vegetarian, and USDA organic fruits and vegetables complete with those antioxidants you're going to want to have built up in your system with flu season just around the corner. This is daily clean green energy that fuels your body for a healthier and happier lifestyle. For a limited time offer, you can visit BrickHouseSteve.com and use promo code Steve to get 15% off your first order. Again, visit BrickHouseSteve.com, use promo Promo code Steve, get 15% off of your order, and today you can experience a better you. All right, we come back here in a couple of minutes here, uh, live on The Blaze and uh, on demand later today at CRTV. Had a chance yesterday afternoon, wife and I, after we got done with the show, went out and uh, saw the new movie about Kermit Gosnell. And we're going to break down, we're going to look at the way the movie tells the story and the quality of the filmmaking as well, because, you know, we got to be good. We can't just have good stories. We have to tell our stories well. We're going to talk about the movie and its messaging and the way it conveys those messages when we come back. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, live on the Blaze, on demand here at CRTV. Todd and Aaron is here, are here with us as well. All right, so yesterday after the show, I had a chance to get out. Uh, the wife and I went and checked out the new Gosnell movie, and um, you know, I remember well when that trial was going on. Um, I was uh, syndicated nightly with Salem Radio Network at that time, and our first top ten market we ever landed. Um, actually it was Atlanta was the top 10 market, but the first top five market we ever landed was WNTP in Philadelphia. And this is before you guys came to work here uh, when Jen and Rebecca were here. And we were so excited uh, to be live in Philadelphia in a top five market. And one of the things we were doing when we first heard about, uh, there was a guy named, I think his name is J.D. Mullane, if I remember right, uh, was the name of the uh, blogger. And there's a character in the film. She is kind of a composite of the, of the various bloggers that covered the Gosnell story and this trial when the mainstream media largely wanted to ignore it. And uh, uh, there was a guy named J.D. Mullane who was sending out transcripts of the testimony uh, that were just, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was, I don't know how to describe it, guys. I mean, this was a hell spawn stuff. I mean, it was just like vile. It, it, it's the kind of stuff like if you handed it to a to a really dark horror writer, like a Clive Barker or an H.P. Lovecraft, they would be like, eh, "That's a little too much for us," <laughs> you know. And I mean, like Clive Barker would be like, "I really can't see Pinhead going that far, guys." Okay, <laughs> and uh, and so I started reading these at night to our audience there on our affiliates across the country, but especially there in Philadelphia. And the reaction we got at first, people were like, they could not believe this was real, you know, and it, and it was actually going on. And we'd get listeners and emails from people right there in Philly who would then email us. And they were like, 
Um, why am I hearing about this? Why isn't this like in the Enquirer? Not the National Enquirer, the Philadelphia Enquirer. Why, why isn't this the front page story in the newspaper? Why, isn't the, why aren't the nightly news crews there? And there's a great scene in this movie. Uh, and and I, I'm not using great cavalierly. Some of this movie, and I think because the temptation for us as conservatives and or Christians, when we make a film that promotes our themes or is overtly religious or, or faith-based, the temptation is to overlook the lack of craftsmanship because we want to be kind to the message. That's one of the reasons why I've, I've, I've always been good buddies with Ted Barrett, Movie Guide. Because Ted came from the movie industry. He was a very successful movie producer, and then he got converted. And so, like, if you make a bad faith-based movie, Ted will say so. Like, if it's not a good movie, like, you can't just, you know, slap the Pure Flix logo on it. And God bless them. We appreciate the work they're doing. But if it's, it, it doesn't matter how many Pure Flix logos you slap on it. If the movie sucks, Ted will tell you. That's not, how you, that's not a good movie, okay? Because we actually think we got to do... Like, I'm sure when Paul went to, like, Corinth and Ephesus, you think he made crappy tents? <laughs> think when he showed up, you know, hey, guys, I'm the half-ass tent builder here in, uh, uh, in Galatia. I'm guessing, knowing what he was going to be up against, he probably made the best dang tents. He probably built the best ones he could make, right? Maggot tents, the best tents yes. you've ever seen. <laughs> you think when Jesus was like a carpenter, you know, knowing what he was about to embark on, do you think he was like, you know what, let me build up a reputation for doing really shoddy craftsmanship before I throw my Messiah shirt on here in Galilee? You think that's what he did? Yeah. Are you the cornerstone or are you the cornerstone? Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You can't expect us to buy you a cornerstone. I mean, look how this doesn't fit into the corner. Exactly. It's a shoddy craftsmanship. You got to be better than that. All right, so we got it. There's no excuse when we've got the greatest story ever told. There's no excuse for us not to tell it well, right? So we're big on not just having the right message, but telling it well. This movie, at times, the direction, uh, and Nick Searcy is a conservative uh, filmmaker in Hollywood. He's the director of the movie. And the direction of this film, at times, is excellent. I mean, the way there, there's, there's a great scene and they set it up and you even know what's coming, but the way it's set up, it's so well done. And this is where the, the district attorney there uh, in Philadelphia, he's got, they're all in the black sedan and he's talking to the witnesses and counsel. It's the first day of live testimony and he's coaching them up. There's going to be a wave, a mob of media here. Don't say anything at all. We don't want this to be a case about whether a woman should have a right to choose or abortion is murder. Don't fall for any of the story. And he's like, really, it's really intense. The camera's right in his face and he's really coaching him up, you know, and then they arrive at the courthouse and they open the car door to the black sedan with the tinted windows and they get out and guess what happens? There's nobody there. There's one person with a student for life table over here. And there's one person over here that says support a woman's right to choose holding a placard over there and there's nobody there and they walk into the courtroom and there's nobody there and the way they set it up though from a cinematography standpoint the way that those shots are set up right on the money right on the money some of the the way that the movie is shot when they invade right not i shouldn't say invade when they have the warrant to go into gosnell's clinic and into his home the way that those shots are put together i mean this is really well done high-quality filmmaking. The writing, for the most part, avoids schmaltz. It gets a little schmaltzy at the end, 
when they get to the trial. And it might just be me because there's cameos in there. When the media finally shows up, there's cameos in there. And I know several of these people. And I didn't know they had cameos. Like I see my buddy Jason Jones, the pro-life activist who uh, does Movie to Moment, which uh, essentially helps get faith-based filmmakers, you know, capital and distribution they need to get their movies made. And he's one of the reporters that finally shows up and he's sitting in the front row and my wife and I are like, that's Jay. All right. And so we were just completely, it could have, if like, if you didn't know who he was, it might not have been kind of like, like I'm kind of, I'm kind of, you know, smiling, talking about it now. Cause it just was such a distraction for us that this is the heated courtroom scene. What's the jury going to do? And there's Jason Jones just sitting there. Hi, Steve. How you doing? It just totally distracted us. So maybe if you don't know who the guy is with the bushy blonde hair and the perpetual tan, because Jason lives in Hawaii. So if you don't know who that is, you probably won't pick up on it. You'll probably pick up on that girl next to him. You're like, isn't that Scotty Hughes? And yes, the female reporter (laughs) with the cameo next to him is Scotty freaking Hughes. Okay. Yes. You, you, it must have been a roller coaster oh, of emotions man. for you it in was. that moment. Because we, we used to go to church with somebody who, Scotty used to babysit their kids when she was a teenager. And I've known, I've, I knew Scotty when she was, you know, pro Mitch McConnell. And then she became the, the Tea Party darling. Then she became the Trump shill. Now she's actually, is she, is she on Russia Today now? <laughs> yes. uh, is that right, Aaron? I can't wait for that? her biography. And then she became. Yeah, so they shot this film a while ago, before I think before her defrocking and she got sent down to Russia today for broadcasting. And they've been trying to get this movie distributed because remember they had the GoFundMe problems and the distribution problems. So my guess is that this most of the principal photography of this film was shot before. Because I think if they had like shot this movie in the last six months to a year, they probably wouldn't have had Scotty Hughes be the female cameo reporter, you know? And so for my wife and I, and there, we were pleasantly surprised there were a lot of people in the, in the movie theater at the mall here. And, and when I say a lot, there were probably 20 people in there, which for a 1.30 matinee in the middle of the week, yeah, for a movie that's not an event movie, so to speak, with a bankable star, that's pretty good, man. Agreed. You know? And, and so the people around us are probably really annoyed because we were like, is that Scotty Hughes? What's Jason? So once we got to the part where the media shows up, in the most tense moment of the trial, we got totally distracted by the fact we knew who several, we know several of the people that are doing the cameos, all right? So the writing may not have broken down into schmaltz at that point. It just may have broken down into, into schmaltz for us because these are people we know well. And, uh, but the direction of the movie, Nick Searcy's direction is really well done. Dean Kane's performance is really good. I mean, the, the level of acting he does in the film compared to everybody else, and nobody else is really terrible, but, I mean, he is, he's really good in the movie. Every scene he's in are the best scenes. I mean, he lifts every scene that's in the film. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's, like, as good as, uh, and, you know, Whenever people ask me what's your favorite faith-based film, this is not a faith-based film, by the way. This is a PG-13 film. There will be a few four-letter words in there. This is more of a theatric version of a Law & Order episode. And I mean, it is, its pacing is almost exactly like a Law & Order. Uh, the way it moves around between back and forth between the trial and the investigation aspect of it, it is very reminiscent of a, of a Law & Order episode with a lot bigger budget. Okay, And I think it was wise for them to take that approach to avoid the sermonizing 
Because you want to convey, there's, there's conveying your message, and then there's the ham-fisted sermonizing. And what you're seeing, by the way, in, in mainstream Hollywood films is they're making this mistake more and more. We just talked about this yesterday with First Man, the way they blew up their own branding. And the, right. They, they, are, they used to be content with entertaining us with their propaganda so we would consume it. And now they're getting so over the top in your face that a lot of moviegoers are just like, I, I don't want to be preached at. And so I don't care if Ryan Gosling's in the movie or I don't care if Russell Crowe is Noah. I don't care if, if Batman Christian Bale is Moses. I'm not going because I can see what you're doing. You're agate propping me. You're, pre- you're peeing on me and telling me it's raining. All right. And so there, there's conveying your message without soliloquying, without ser- sermonizing and using that storytelling device of a law and order episode because the direction keeps things going like this. And really the pacing only slows down to a, the, the metronome only slows down about right here when we get to the trial. So um, it was wise to do that to avoid sermonizing. And you, and you get the, you get the point of what is at stake and they, there's little subtle things in there that they do fast that are, are potent. There's a scene where uh, the, the initial judge that gives them the, uh, the grand jury um, uh, indictment and subpoena uh, is a judge that is adamant that this will not be a case about a woman's right to choose. She will, she will not overturn reproductive freedom. And then when Gosnell's attorneys put forth an order demanding that his turtles be removed from the clinic and cared for because they're an endangered species, the judge that happened. That happened actually in the trial, and the way it's per, the way, and the judge is adamant that she is a staunch defendant of the uh, adherent to the Endangered Species Act, and they don't like connect the dots for you. Like the judge just five minutes ago said, "I'm fine. We're not giving a case that says human beings are life, but we are damn well going to enforce the Endangered Species Act to defend turtles." Like they don't cross where they where you cross the the line of preachiness is when you connect the dots for the audience, where then let the audience the audience. We'll connect the dots for themselves. And they and and Circe's direction does a really good job with that in this movie. So if you like the way Law and Order does it, you'll like the way this movie does it. They do it with a far bigger budget. Dean Kane is really good in the movie. The direction is really good. The writing, I think, kind of bogs down at the end, but I think maybe that's only because we were distracted by who some of the cameos are. Maybe if you don't know who those people are, it won't it won't mean that much to you. But um they overall they did a really good job with it. I thought. I, I thought it fascinating so far that the the major critical theme that I've seen from fans of the movie is that it wasn't dark enough. I, they don't quite put their finger on it. They don't. They just say it didn't quite go there to the extent that they wished. I don't know what they mean, but having seen it, do you know what they mean? Yeah, I know what they mean. I think. I think. Um, I think, and this is the question we had with uh, Phelan McAleer, who is mm-hmm. one of the co-producers and co-writers of the movie, who wrote the the Gosnell book. And if you were listening to us last week, uh, before we crossed over here to the Blaze as well, is Phelan uh, talked about how uh, him and his wife, who worked on the original Gosnell book together for Regnery, uh, they were abortion agnostic. They kind of, in general, be- were pro-choice just because they didn't believe in the government telling you know an adult what to do with their own body. But they had never really thought deeply about the issue, never really looked deeply into it. And um, and he told us on the show last week. You'll recall I asked him about this. Are you guys going to go there? And they did. And he said, "Hey, we go there in in terms of the dialogue, but not in the visual. There are some horrible visuals." Um, but probably not 
um, as gut wrenching. Uh, if you were if you were hoping that they went to went where Mel Gibson went with a crucifixion, where he showed you about a third maybe of what really goes on with a scourging and a crucifixion to truly um, break the audience, uh, they don't go that far. But the dialogue does make it clear of what was really going on there. Does make it clear. They they didn't put as much of the of the just horrid testimony and you know my previous book Nefer- a nefarious plot lord nefarious uh glowingly quotes from the transcript of the gosnell trial in order to spike the ball in the end zone about what he's done to our culture they don't put as much of that in there as i thought was going to be in there but the the part that's the most devastating about the baby that was clearly born alive uh that gosnell says oh boy this is a big one and then he turns right around when he's sitting there crying Full, fully developed baby boy, and he sits there to a fully developed baby boy in front of his nurses and takes a pair of scissors and snips the back of his neck. You actually see that. You don't see the scissors connect with the neck or the baby, but they, from the way that the camera angle is presented, but you are well aware of what is happening there with that moment in the film. Yeah. How did that uh, actor do portrayed Gosnell because you, people know him. He's done like Aflac commercials. Yeah. He's, a car- he's just a commercial actor. If you, if you, if you, you won't really know how he did unless you know, unless you saw any of the interviews with Gosnell after the fact, for example. But if you saw the interviews with Gosnell after the fact, he nails it. I mean, the, his cavalier demeanor. I mean, Gosnell went, was literally, while they were going through his home, because he, he kept trophies and remains at his house. He, I mean, these are really the marking. He's a real serial killer, okay? Um, and when they were going through his home for cash financial records and stuff, he was actually playing classical music on the piano the entire time, you know, and, and they met, they do end up mentioning that in the closing credits. And so he does a great job of pointing that out. And you know what? I should have, I want to mention this too, before we run out of time. You remember Janine Turner? Yes, I do. The The really hot chick on Northern Exposure when we were kids. Love that show. Yeah. Yeah. She has a, a small role in this movie. And, one of the best scenes in this film is um, they call the, the prosecution calls her to testify as a legitimate abortion doctor, quote unquote. And they want to make it clear that um, they're not trying abortion, but they're just saying the way Gosnell was doing it was bad. And, and so she's the Planned Parenthood woman that comes and speaks as the, as the subject matter witness, uh, the expert witness for the prosecution. And she talks about how uh, these, these practices of snipping the neck and stuff Gosnell was doing, they don't do those things. And that's, not, that's inhumane. And that's not what happens at a real abortion clinic. And, they, and, and then the defense attorney for Gosnell gets up and says, ma'am, how many abortions have you consulted on or per- personally performed? And she says, over 30,000. Over 30,000, she says. And she said, and he said, you ever had uh, a child when you, when you, he, he, they, she, he makes her describe what, what the DNA is, vacuuming out the body parts. Uh, he makes, he puts up a sonogram of a fetus and says, when you go in with your forceps to make sure that the baby is dead before you vacuum it out, where do you place the forceps? And he makes her show the jury, and you see it on the screen that it's right there at the base of the neck. And remember, this is the defense. And the defense attorney, attorney is making these questions. the defense attorney is, and then the defense attorney literally says, "What's more? You ever had a baby born alive? What did you do?" If the, and she said, "Yes." She goes, what did you, "She goes, we give it comfort care. 
And he says, what is that? Well, we give it blankets and stuff, and then we just, you know, until it expires. And he says, so you just have it there on the gurney and just let it bleed out, breathe out until it expires? Isn't what Gosnell was doing, putting it down? Isn't that more humane? That that Yikes. is maybe the best scene in the I film. Would pay 20, I would pay the full price of admission just to see that cross-examined. Janine Turner's facial expressions as she's being cross-examined and deconstructed are on point. Now that I think of it, that might be the single most powerful scene in the film. And it's worth the price of admission just to go see that. Agreed. Just to go see that. Where, 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 the, where the defense attorney does a better job arguing the premise of our argument than the prosecution against Gosnell was willing to do. Don't we see that all the time, by the way? Oh, where the left actually yeah. does a better job arguing against our premises than we argue for the premise of our own arguments? Perhaps this is why God is, in fact, long-suffering, because this is how the truth can and must find a way. Hour two of the Steve Day Show, live in the blaze, on demand at CRTV. is next. And we are back with hour two here live on The Blaze today on demand at CRTV. And and for those of you that uh, like podcasts, maybe you can't always listen to us live, watch us live, or you don't have two hours every single day to watch the video at CRTV. And so every now and then you got to get this on demand, or maybe you've got friends out there that are looking for something new to uh, to watch or listen to. And, you know, hey, how do we give them a sample of what you guys do before we ask them to pony up for a subscription? You know, a great answer to both of those dilemmas is to subscribe to the archived podcast version of this show each and every day. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, uh, all of those platforms are available to you right now. Uh, and, and furthermore, if you have some time today, if you could not just click subscribe, but leave us a five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice, the more of you that do that, the more people tend to check us out. I mean, I'm a podcast consumer. And so, you know, when I'm looking for something like, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a new football handicapping show when I'm working out, for example, that I want to listen to. And you know, I'll go find out if I don't know who the guy is. Yeah, well, how many people like this? Because chances are he's got a base of an audience that shows he's got some support and some credibility. So I'm more inclined to check out the guy with 55 star reviews and the guy that has three of them, right? So that helps us get the word out. We greatly appreciate those of you that have already done so. If you have time today to leave us one of those reviews, we would greatly appreciate you as well. And don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. All right, it is time for Theology Thursday. And in keeping with our theme this week, sort of a freshman orientation, Steve Day Show 101 for our new audience at The Blaze that's joining our existing audience at CRTV, we're going to give you sort of a rundown of, of where we believe the culture we're trying to reach is currently at. And years ago, I created sort of a cultural devolution chart. When a culture begins to break down, Romans 1 style, when Paul writes, we exchange the truth for a lie. And I think the articles that he uses there, you know, like a and the, remember your grammar class in the fifth grade? The articles he uses there, I think, are fascinating. When he says they have exchanged the, the would be an article that indicates um, singularity, right? Specificity. Singleness. Uniqueness. 
Paul writes, they have exchanged the truth for a lie. It's not your truth. Right. There's no such thing as your truth. You have no truth to tell. You may have the truth to tell, but your truth, nobody cares. Well, unfortunately, way too many people care. Nobody should, right? There, there is no your truth. There is the truth, and it may be the truth of what happened to you or what you experienced, but that doesn't make it your truth. It makes it the truth that you tell. Um, so there's the truth, Paul writes, and then he says, a lie. A can mean a plethora. A signifies multiplicity. So there's a lot of lies out there. And then there's the truth. The sea of lies that we are swimming in in our culture today, that's what we're going to focus on here for Worldview or for for Theology Thursday. And we're going to look at the seven deadly worldviews. These are the worldviews that right now are most competing for the hearts and minds of the American people, according to how we survey the landscape. And, and, they, and they break a culture down in the order we're going to discuss on purpose because they have to set you up for the next scam. This isn't an isolated, random set of occurrences. The devil is very good at what he does. And I'm not using that word cavalierly. What, and, and, and what the devil does, basically, you know, Solomon writes, there's nothing new under the sun. And then to which I just add, there's just new people under the sun that haven't fallen for it yet, or haven't heard about it yet. The devil just does uh, his greatest hits album. He's kind of re-racks. You know, um, he knows, he, there's a reason why, even though the great Glenn Fry has passed on, there's a reason why we keep going to Eagles concerts, because the music is still great. Yeah, what's the point of being uh, putting out original stuff if the right. golden oldies keep just crushing? Yes, and you know you've got to hear Desperado and Hotel California and Already Gone, right? You, you know, and 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 Don Henley knows that the new stuff he's doing when he ought to be getting fitted for a rocking chair may suck. All right, but he also knows that even if he throws in some of his solo stuff, you love. He knows like. Hey, when they don't want to hear the new stuff, just you know, go run dirty laundry at him, and the crowd's totally back into it. And Joe Walsh, you know, his he was never a great vocalist, but now his vocals are like totally shot now. But he knows, he knows if he just busts out some uh, Rocky Mountain Way, like he could just sit there and miss nine chords because his reflexes aren't what they were in 1978. But he knows if he does this, he knows. If that opening riff of Rocky Mountain Way kicks in, the cougar crowd's going to forget all the times he's messed up and bored them in the last 20 minutes, and they're just all in. It, it, rem- it reminds me of what Trump said during the primary in 2016. I don't know. I just ramble on at these rallies, and then sooner or later, I just say, we're going to build a wall, and everybody's bored, and then when I say we're going to build a wall, the crowd's like, yeah, remember when he did that? Oh, yeah. That's what we're talking about, Okay. And the enemy, when it comes to cultural devolution, is really good at this. He doesn't have like he doesn't have like a a, a, a Belichickian playbook. Like you go to the New England Patriots, you're like, hey, here, Rook, here's your playbook, and you're like, I got to do strength and conditioning, man, just to carry this thing around, <laughs> right? Then Belichick is like, and then we need you to learn that in a week, right? Nah, the enemy understands. Keep it simple, stupid, okay? It's really not 4D chess. No, it is, it is not. 
and he knows he's got he's got a he's got a track list. He's got a mixtape. All right, he's got a song list on your Amazon, and he knows there's five or six that you can just hit, okay? And he knows the siren song we will respond to, okay? And so this devolution chart has worked all throughout human history because there's nothing new under the sun. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all right? And so we fall for these things and here's, but here's the most difficult truth. We fall for them because we want to. We fall for them because we want to. That's why. You slept with that woman at the office that it's not your wife and blew up your family because you wanted to. If you didn't want to sleep with her, guess what you probably wouldn't have done, Todd? Sleep with her? That's, yeah, yeah you, that's why you did that. You, you, you let that uh, dude without a job in his mom's basement, you know, downing, uh, you know, code red, uh, and you let him impregnate you. When everybody told you he's a loser, don't date him. You let him become your baby daddy. Why'd you let him do that? Why'd you let him do anything? You wanted to? You wanted to. That's why I did it. Did it because you wanted to. You did that, but you didn't go smoke crack because you don't want to do what? Smoke That's crack. why you didn't do it. Yeah. On the other hand, you went and smoked crack but you didn't let that dude loser in his mom's basement because you become your baby daddy. Because what in this case did you want to do? I don't want to play this game anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me sad. Cut well, to a half hour later. It's still as going a, on. As a Catholic in good standing, one of Todd's favorite New Testament books would be James. And James is very <laughs> clear that we only succumb to the temptation that we want, Right. I'm not tempted by things I don't like because, now stay with me, this is going to be really technical psychoanalysis here. Deep, probing, Jungian psychiatry. Are this you ready? This is the 4D chest. Yeah, right this here, is yeah. 4D chest right here. You're not tempted by the things you don't want because, wait for it, you don't want them. I'm done, guys. You're lucky to have us, Blaze. That's You're right. Lucky to have us. Can you say he that ain't again? The, he ain't the best color man in the league for nothing, Mal. In Latin. Yes, in Latin. In Aramaic. How about pig Latin? Okay. Ixnay on the do they because you want that. That's why you do it. Okay. We do bad that we do the bad stuff we do because we want that bad That's stuff. That's your next book title, Did by like the that? way. Yeah. For sure. There's not a close second. Ixnay on the. I'm not even going to try to emulate that down. again. Quick. Yes. yes. We do the bad stuff we want to do because we want it. And we don't do the bad stuff we don't want because we don't want it. That's that's it. All right. And so the reason why these messages appeal to us, some of you that are old timers, you're like, hot oh, damn, man. I, I remember when we were, you know, beating the pinko commies back in uh, East Europe. And, and Reagan was dropping, you know, threatening to drop MX missiles on him. And even Jimmy Carter was pulling out of Moscow Olympics. And now my kids come home from university and they're like, hey, what do you think about shared wealth? And you're like, didn't we win these arguments? Well, maybe. But again, new generation, enemy bust out, his greatest hits track, and the siren songs begin all over again. Nothing new under the sun. It's just the enemy playing his greatest hits for a new audience who thinks this is the freshest, dopest rhymes they've ever heard. That's all this is. Every era of human history until Jesus returns. That's what history is right there. That's 
boy, that dad should have said, you know what? If I was sharing my wealth, I wouldn't have enough money to send you to that crappy university. That's right. That's where the dad's like, the dad ought to be asking him, why am I sending you to this crappy university? Indeed. That's what daddy ought to be asking. Dad ought to be asking, instead of, the, instead of dad ripping the university, dad ought to be like, why the hell did I work 35 damn years to send my kid to a university to believe a bunch of stuff that is, is, a, is a line of bull? Why am I, why am I, going for, why am I taking out a second mortgage to subsidize this? That's the question daddy ought to be asking. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Oh, it is actually one of the fundamental questions of our times, quite frankly. All right. So what are these worldviews? They break a culture down in the order we are about to discuss them. All right. These are the seven deadly worldviews that are the most in competition for the American heart and mind as we speak. And they begin with this very first one. Gnosticism from the Greek word gnosis or knowledge. It is the belief that the revealed truths in God's word are not sufficient either for salvation, justification, or existence. Therefore, either there is knowledge that God has arbitrarily hidden from us that we are entitled to, or he only reveals this knowledge to special people so that they can truly know him and his ways. Now, what we're saying here is not that the Bible is the only source of knowledge. Can I learn how to become a cardiovascular surgeon by studying the scriptures, gentlemen? Can I learn that? No. No, I can't because it's, that's not its point or its primary purpose. There, there are absolutely great sources of knowledge and truth, not including the scriptures, but there needs to be an ultimate truth. There needs to be an ultimate standard so that when your cardiovascular surgeon who taught you what the four chambers of the heart were and what the key arteries were and, 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 and you know, when to do a bypass and when not and when to fix a valve and when not, comes back to you one day and says, you know, I kind of think I, I can self-identify as a woman now. And you're like, dude, you have a penis and your chromosomes haven't changed, okay? You need to know, when did he, when did he abandon science for science, right? right? Okay, right? so when he's accepting the truth of human physiology as it was made by the creator in order to heal people, he is practicing science. When he is determining, you know what, maybe I'll change that physiology to be what I want it to be, he's doing science. Because that same cardiovascular surgeon who may now decide that he can transition his gender, I guarantee you, if you walked into the OR and you were his head nurse, and you said, you know, you know, John or Jen, whatever your name is now, you know, I, I kind of think this aorta is transitioning into a medulla oblongata. That's kind of, I think it's kind of identifying as a medulla oblongata now. And it's not an aorta anymore. Uh, so good luck with that. Yeah, you know? He's probably going to fire your ass and realize that you're going to cost him a lot of money in, uh, in liability insurance, right? It's funny how that works, isn't it? Funny how that works. Suddenly the guys, you, you know what? You, those of you that don't want to believe in absolute truth, I promise you when you're on a gurney with your chest open or your, or your scalp uh, exposed, you probably want some absolute truth about right then, right? Are you saying that heresies aren't internally consistent, Steve? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because the guy who's usually responsible for those heresies, his name's the devil. Uh, he hates you and wants to destroy you. And that's, that's why he teaches them to you. So you will destroy yourself with them and then he will laugh and get pleasure out of it. Yeah. Good to know. And, and he, is, he is responsible for this very first deadly worldview. He shows up. Human, human, humankind is in a paradise. Adam and Eve are in a paradise, and the enemy 
slithering like a serpent shows up and he asks one simple question, but it's not really simple at all. He asks this question, did God really say? Did God really say? Yeah, I think he's, and the implication of that question is, you know, are you sure that's what he said? And maybe the reason he said it is because he doesn't have your best interest at heart. Maybe he's trying to hold you back. Maybe he's trying to deny who you can truly be. Maybe he doesn't want any competition. Maybe he doesn't want what's best for you. Oh, I know. He made you from the dust of the earth and literally out of nothing, gave you total vicar-like control and dominion over his creation. And then his first commandment to you was go have a lot of sex. But I think when you stop and think about it, that's, those are clear signs that he's holding back on you and he's, he's got it in for you. He gave you almost total control and power and said, go get busy a lot. But I think when you really stop and think that's totally code for oppression. Does it sound dumb when you lay it out like that? <laughs> Just a little bit. But is the, did I not accurately in my own way? <laughs> did, I not, did I not accurately describe that chain of events? You yes, did. you did. Did I not? When you, when you take it outside of the temptable moment and just put it in this Petri dish over here and remove all the emotion, this sounds like what a bunch of dumb asses, right? That's why you can't... What's so great about this is starting with... You cannot take on the truth head on right. out of the gate because it's, it's so obvious what it is when you take it on head on. You couldn't take that right. on, but... You get around the edges. I'm not denying out of the gate here that there's no truth, but come on, maybe we need to reframe a little bit. We yeah. need to consider. We're just respect. having a conversation. Exactly. Yes. That's all we're doing, right? Yeah. Your generation loves those right here. We're just having just, just having just a conversation. Ask, just asking questions. That's you know, all we're doing. They're on the sharing ball. Questions. Let's see what you think. <laughs> yeah. Did you beat your wife last night? Brick heaven, are you a gang rapist? I mean, we're just asking questions. This isn't a character assassination. We're just asking questions, right? Dude, were you a gang rapist in the summer of 81? I mean, just, just wondering. <laughs> just wondering, you know? So once we, the problem with this is the way we often respond to this challenge, okay? Our nature tends to respond to error with error. And so when we fall for this initial, this is the genesis of lies that God is holding out on you and has chosen special people he loves more than you to give more of himself and his love and his care and his truth to. Okay? When, when you, what's funny when you look at the scriptures, when God calls a prophet, it is not because the prophet has special knowledge unless they're given foresight but even when the prophet is given foresight, sometimes prophets are just called uh, to tell the truth. Sometimes they're given foresight. But the point of the prophet giving, given, whether it's, if the prophet is not given foresight and is just called to essentially, like Jonah, call Nineveh to repent, God is saying, I want you to return to my truth. And so I, I'm not sending this wizard. I'm not sending Gandalf. No. I'm sending you, I want you to come back to what I have saved, reserved and saved for you. I want you to come back to the special things in, that I've made and done for you. That's the point of sending you this prophet. And then if you're given, if the prophet is given the gift of foresight, that again is to the point of 
calling God's people back to community with him, not to exclude certain people from others. I mean, even go through the Old Testament, even at the points where the Israelites were at their most nationalistic fervor, God is talking about future mercy and, on, on, on pagan peoples and, and, and that his house would be a house of prayer to all nations. So the point of even God gifting people with, with I wouldn't even call it special knowledge, maybe advanced knowledge, is, to, is, is for them to share it and not hoard it with some exclusive community that if you do these rituals and these rites and you say these magic mantras and phrases, you're in the lucky spirituality occult club. It's to bring more people to him. You said it yesterday. God is relationship. Yes. Amen. Thank God. Otherwise, uh, the version of God we would have is... Uh, one that looks far closer uh, to Islam or no God at all. God is ultimately, I mean, he, he, he is the big tent. He, that, he, and it's the reason why the whole uh, progressive lie of the big tent has uh, been so effective because it is a perversion of the truth. All, all, all of Satan's game ultimately is a perversion of the truth. All creation was good. Satan only starts picking away at that, just like it, uh, everything is is some riff, and we're going to get is some riff on. Did he really say? Yep, that's why it, this is the first not, one. It's yes. just not out of the gate. Just just some gigantic middle finger to the truth, and I got this. Oh, no, no, it's 180 degrees this way. It's never that ever. And you see a lot of really trendy, trendy Christians as well. Gnosticism crops up, I think, in a lot of the other worldviews as well. This is, I mean, there's a reason why this is. This is um, the basis of it. But you hear, you hear Gnosticism a lot when, um, when you hear people say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those Christians. I'm, uh, I'm a conservative. I'm not one of those conservatives. Um, yeah. As if you have some sort of idea what truly, makes, what truly makes you a real Christian or a real conservative. You, you have that special knowledge. And you, you, out there, you, you out there in the cheap seats do not. That present it presents itself everywhere, um, but that's one example as you guys were talking that that came to my mind. It, 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 rem- it reminds me of the we've talked about this before the exchange the late atheist Christopher Hitchens had with one of the sort of progressive Christians Aaron was just was just uh, discussing, and at the end of his life, uh, Hitchens did a series of debates with uh, Doug Wilson, the pastor out in Moscow, Idaho. I just spoke at Doug's uh, youth conference this summer, and. Um, and they essentially, they, they did these written debates in Christianity Today, and they did some, I think they did some events as well around the country. And in response to these back and forths, this progressive woman identifying as a Christian sent Christopher Hitchens, the late atheist, a note saying, I agree, I don't have to believe in a virgin birth and all these, and a resurrection to be a Christian or that the Bible is God's word. And Hitchens wrote back to her, He said, ma'am, might I suggest that if you don't believe the Bible is the word of God, that Jesus Christ was was dead, buried, and physically resurrected on the third day, and that he was born of a virgin so that he would not be tainted with the sin that stains all of mankind, you may be a lot of things, madam, but a Christian would not be one of them. 
Amen. This is why it's so important in Scripture. When St. Paul, uh, in his uh, letters, and he always introduces himself as a, a slave to Jesus Christ. He's making this point. This is not the church of Paul. I, and, and when he points out, forgive me, in that uh, argument, you know, you guys keep saying you're uh, Christians of Apollos. Yes. And, and they, he's yep. making that point yet again. Some of you say you're with Peter or yes. Cephas. Some of you say you're with me or with Apollos. There's one Lord, one baptism, one church. That's what he says in response. All right, so when we are confronted with error, here's the problem. We have a tendency to respond with more error, all right? And so this leads us to the second worldview that is deadly in our culture today. And this is the worldview of legalism, a religious system that puts more emphasis on a works-based righteousness than the saving grace of Jesus Christ, which may also include the elevation of human traditions— as evidence of a person's level of holiness or moral purity. So if we go back to the garden now, the enemy has shown up and Eve is there being tempted. By the way, what's her husband who is to be her protector and defend her? What is he doing while this is going down? Not a damn thing is the answer. Nothing. He's doing nothing. So ladies, you want to know why your man, his initial inclination when confronted with moral certainty uh, and, and the call to conviction to act so often is an initial passivity. This is why we're sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, as Lewis would put it in the Chronicles of Narnia. And so how does Eve respond? Well, did God really say this? Eve responds with an error. She responds with, well, God said not to touch the fruit. That, is that what God said? No. God said, if you eat of this fruit, okay, then you will surely die. Word touch was never put in there. She responds with her spin on events, her turn on events. And then what happens is Adam ends up, instead of jumping in front as the head to defend his wife from calamity, he ends up taking part. And then later when God confronts them, after succumbing to his own self-righteous standard, Rather than defending God's standard, Adam then turns around and says to God, well, this is your fault. I mean, it's the woman you gave me. This plays out in our news media all the time. I've been on news media panels where I've literally said to the cable news host, do you want God to be in control or not? Choose. Because, I mean, all I hear you guys say all the time is you want to behave the way you want to behave, not the way God calls us to behave. And then when God lets you behave the way you want to behave, then you want to blame him for the consequences. You can't have it both ways. Choose one. Do you, do you want God? Because if you want God to be, if you want God to be to blame, then first you have to give God control. First, we have to admit that God's a God, and we're not. God can only be accountable if He is God. So if He is God and He has said, "Do this, don't do that; do this, don't do that," and you and and you don't do those things, why is it His fault then? Why isn't it yours? Well, because again, we're daughters of Eve and sons of Adam. And, and this is where you have to know what goes in your open hand and what goes in your closed hand. Open hand, closed hand, I did it wrong, okay? Uh, in your closed hand needs to be your convictions. These are the things that you know one day you're going to stand before your creator and have to answer for. And you better be right about these things. And you cannot bend on these things. You don't bend on these things even for the people you love. Because ultimately, when you stand and give an account for your life one day, it will not be to or with the people you love. It'll be you alone with your creator, the most powerful being in the universe. And it'll be just you. 
period. And in this closed hand of convictions, there shouldn't be a lot. There should be some, but but not this, there shouldn't be like 76 things in here, guys. Or pardon the pun. There shouldn't be 95 theses in here, all right? There should be like five, six, seven, eight. I mean, when God introduces himself formally to humanity, when he introduces his 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 brand formally to identity or brand formally to humanity, he gives us 10 statements, guys. You know, like the great joke about seminaries, define God and give three examples. Well, God defined himself and he gave 10 examples, all right? Okay, so God thought he could define himself with 10 examples. You don't need... We, it's the joke David Barton makes about how many more laws are, on, are in the U.S. code compared to laws that God gave to the Jews. Is it like 618 laws were given to the Jews, right, or something like that? Yeah. And there's like 600,000 laws in the U.S. code, right? If, if God can define himself and his ethics and his brand in 10 commandments, you don't need 15 or 16 things in here. Just going to throw that out there as a possibility. You're not more complex than God. You're not more nuanced than God. You're not smarter than God. All right. So when you, because the more things you put in here, the more likely it is you're a legalist. Actually, over my shoulder. The more likely it is you're a legalist, and it's more about what you think. Now, let me tell you what legalism is not. Legalism is not. I really want to follow what the Word of God says because we're doing that a lot in the in the church nowadays. Like I'll say, well, what you're suggesting to me is actually not what the Bible says. The Bible says, "Oh, you're a Pharisee, oh, legalist." The Babylon being nailed this recently said, "said what uh, Jesus cited as not very Christian." It, <laughs> yes, essentially, for the wages of sin is death. Legalism. Yes, you know when Jesus confronted the Pharisees about their legalism, he didn't say their zeal to obey the law was bad. He said, "Hey, you guys tithe on every ounce of of spice. That's great." You have a desire to follow the letter of the law, but if you're doing it at the expense of the spirit of the law, which is mercy and sacrifice, you should have done the former with the latter. He doesn't tell him to stop following the the law. He says to follow it in its proper context. If you follow it out of sight of God's context and you're following it in your own and you're guilty of self-righteousness. I get called self-righteous all the time by quoting the scriptures. Now, my, 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 uh, my interpretation of the Bible can be wrong. But if I'm using something other than myself to base what I think is right and wrong on, guess what I cannot be? Self. Self-righteous. If I'm using something other than myself to determine what's right and wrong, I might be right, I might be wrong, but you know what I cannot be by definition? Self-righteous. Those of you that are determining this by your own opinions, you're the ones that are self-righteous. Let's get back here to the seven deadly worldviews here live on The Blaze and on demand on CRTV. It's a Theology Thursday here on the Steve Day Show. So we talked about step one is Gnosticism, or it's it's essentially the, the idea that God isn't God, but we are. Or if he is God, he doesn't deserve to be because he's not fair and he's holding out on us. And he gave us a really raw deal. He created us in his image, gave us almost total, complete control of his creation. And then his first command and edict was to go have a lot of sex. But yes, patriarchy, oppressive tyranny. Yes. Uh, and then the second step is we respond to error with our own interpretation, our own spin on events. All right, this is legalism and the idea that we create a self-righteousness, our own code of ethics that we will enforce mercilessly rather than repent and admit we're wrong and accept the grace of God when it's offered to us. 
So this creates our next opening for our next deadly worldview. And this is the worldview of dualism. Now, what is dualism? Dualism is the belief that evil and good are essentially two sides of the same coin. They've got equal preeminence, and therefore it's up to the human being to choose which one to align himself with. Dualism views the supernatural and natural world as one, often existing in a circle or a sphere called existence. Therefore, there are occult aspects of dualism that believe these co-equal forces can be manipulated by human beings. You see these, this is, this is the, most, the most popular religious view in, in, in some of America's most preeminent pop culture, Star Wars, the Force. The Force in and of itself is not moral. It's transcendent, but it lacks more, more moral clarity. It has light and dark, and it can be used and wielded. And, you know, the prophecy of Anakin bringing balance to the Force, well, at the time Anakin was, was coming of age, the Jedi were in control, and he brought balance to the Force by destroying the Jedi including all of the younglings. He did bring balance to the force. The, the prophecy proved to be true. It was just he was really bad. And then Return of the Jedi, Anakin brings balance to the force again. All right? And he ends up casting the emperor into the abyss when he was primarily responsible for the emperor's rise to power in the first place. So the force, the god-like entity of the Star Wars universe doesn't really have a morality. It just exists. And then human beings decide how they're going to use it uh, for good or for evil. Harry Potter, Aaron, this is your, this is, and I'm a, we're big Harry Potter fans at our house too, but this is your Star Wars, right? Okay. Right. And so the, Harry, this is preeminent throughout Harry Potter. All right. You have those who follow uh, the one who shall not be named, Lord Voldemort. Okay. And then you have those who are in the Dumbledore camp that went to Hogwarts and, you know, and, and learned the proper way uh, to use w witchcraft and wizardry. Uh, again, the light and the dark. These are themes and forms of dualism. Uh, the old George Burns show, Oh God, You Devil, or the commercial where the devil's on one shoulder and the angel's on the other, and they're competing for you. God is God. There is no other. There is no one that can hang his jock strap, let alone uh, compete with him. The oldest written book of the Bible, according to most records, is Job. And how does Job begin? It begins with the devil needing permission of God to tempt Job. There is, there is God and there is no other. He is holy and set apart from us. There needs to be something because we live here in a fallen world because we have all sinned. Something must bridge this gap between him and us. We are incapable of bridging the gap ourselves. We tried it at Babel and we saw how that turned out and we've been trying on our own self-righteously ever since before finally, and we're going to celebrate this event here in about 69 days, finally when we couldn't get to heaven, heaven came down and made a way for us. It built the bridge to us through God's son, Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's why the chorus sings, hallelujah, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Um, you know, God and sinners reconciled. Who did the reconciling? Is it sinners and God reconciled or God and sinners reconciled? What's the first word there? God. He had to reconcile to us. We couldn't get to him. He had to come to us. Dualism just rejects everything I just said. Dualism rejects everything I just said. Now, it does make for some very cool story tropes, the light and the dark and those sorts of things. We don't deny that. We're just telling you, though, it's a false religious view. Your thoughts on dualism, gentlemen? Well, I was going to comment on that. It, I mean, obviously, 
there is a devil, so there's dark. But there, it, 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 it's Christian uh, theology does not operate like a physics mm-hmm. equation. That's what you're saying yes. about right. ultimately yeah. about uh, 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 the force action. I'm not saying rea- the darkness doesn't exist. I'm saying it, that it that it couldn't hold, couldn't tug on Superman's cape. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, this is why we, we as Christians, as dark as things get, this we we can say the game is already won. I mean, mm-hmm. ultimate victory is at hand in. In dualism, I mean, you just, eh, well, the teeter-totter's up ends, right now. And there may not be a winner coming, and a loser, yeah. and it goes up and down, right? A proper Christian understanding of the presence of evil in the world understands that we're really not so much at war with evil as much as we are the, we are the police action. We're the mop-up action that goes in house-to-house, door-to-door to do the last vestiges before the war is won because the neutron bomb was dropped at Calvary, at the cross. That's where the, that's where the war was won. It's not over, but it was won. Meaning there are still vestiges and hideouts. There are still enclaves and outposts that need to be cleaned out. Okay. But the war was already won. The war is not over, but it's already won. That's the tension of transcendence. God is imminent, but he's also he's also uh, above us at the same exact time. That's the tension that cre- the Christian worldview creates. Dualism rejects any of that whatsoever. And so, what what a what a when a Christian we have as much evil in this world as we are willing to tolerate. If God is sovereign and is a Christian, if you believe that, you do believe that. If you have a Judeo-Christian worldview, you believe that. So if, if God is sovereign and there is evil in the world, then really what that means is there's as much evil in this world as we are willing to tolerate. What dualism says is that evil, good, all of it's in a, it's in a, it's, you know, it's in a, uh, what is it, a witch's brew, you know, and they just all exist in this circle of life, Elton John. That's what dualism says. So first we reject God as the ultimate source of truth. Then we elevate ourselves to a co-equal, if not superior source of truth through legalism. And then we say that essentially evil is every bit as powerful as good. So now we're diminishing the power and sovereignty of God. To the point then, now we're going to kind of reject the sovereignty of God whatsoever. And that's the next deadly worldview we're going to talk about now. And that is the worldview of Darwinism. The belief that the universe is the result of random chance occurring completely in the natural world and not the purposeful plan of a creative and sovereign God. That humanity is a mere byproduct of this methodical evolution of natural substances and is not the imago Dei, the image of God. That this materialistic worldview thus nullifies biblical doctrines like original sin, salvation, miracles, and instead sees the human condition as a result of simple natural selection. Therefore, humanity as a species progressively evolves physically, mentally, morally, and relationally. See, Blaise Pascal was right. We all have a God-shaped hole in the heart. But once we decide we kick God out of that hole, the hole remains. Something transcendent has to fill it. We need a creation myth. We, we need something that tells us why we're here. We crave it. Because even if we deny we are the Imago Dei, we are still the Imago Dei. You may deny you're a male, but you're still one. doesn't change how many times you deny it, how vehemently you deny it. You may deny you're made in the image of God, but you still are. And so that craving for transcendence in the heart remains. Something fills it. Darwinism comes along. That's what it's called in our time. It's this 
methodology has had different names in other times. But in our time, Darwinism comes along and says, um, the only transcendence is within you. You won, the, you won natural selection. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Darwinism comes along and gives you permission to do and be what you really want to do and be, which is your own God. And Darwinism gives you the scientific transcendence. Science is magic. Not science, but science. Science is magic. Science now fills that hole in your heart. And as De La Soul once rapped, do what you like. That's what Darwinism does. I also think you compared that to what we just said about uh, uh, the previous um, in du- dualism. You, we as Christians say, hey, you, you're not basically good, but the best but ever. Now, oftentimes when you hear about you're like, oh, but no, this time it's like, <laughs> but you, you, but, God, but God's got this. There is a beauty beyond compare uh, in store for your uh, entire life. Here though, uh, with uh, Dara, I mean, and, and that's where people get, oh man, what a what a downer! I don't believe in a God who. What does, what is Darwinism gonna is the tip of the spear now with what's being uh, laid out? Um, you're you're an accident. You, this this is really a nothing burger. There's not. I mean, you, you might get lucky and win some kind of a lottery, right. but that guy over there. Is I don't screwed. want a loving yeah. God who I re, I don't want to believe a loving God would send people to hell. So I want to believe in a loving God who told me that I have no purpose for being here yeah. whatsoever, and everything I do doesn't matter. That's inspiring yeah, up with people right there fantastic so i this is where it's so important you know the, the, what's it, it's so important to be honest out of the outset hey you're a sinner because that's the beginning of figuring out uh how you break the chains man um uh, the, the the what what darwinism is doing and actually despite uh the little trinkets and oftentimes because of the trinkets the unfettered whatever that's the key to putting you in chains forever and ever so once we have established now that there is no original design or purpose for humankind. So, so now we've, we've kicked God out of the human heart. We have replaced it with a new transcendence, which is nothing. Well, we need an ethical system. We need, we need something that still, we can't just have chaos. We have to have some ethical system. And this is where the next, the next uh, spot on the flowchart of cultural devolution comes from. This is where we go to pragmatism, a utilitarian ideology that says only something which works satisfactorily is true and or that the validity of a truth, statement, proposition, or belief is to be found in the practical consequences of accepting it. I saw a, uh, one of those uh, televangelists, T.D. Jakes, on CNN several years ago. And he was asked by the, uh, the reporterette, why, are, why do you believe in Christianity? And he said, well, I believe in Christianity because it works for me. That's not Christianity, guys. That's utilitarian ethics. You know, I mean, a Bavarian house painter thought gas and six million Jews worked for him. If the standard is, or the son of a Bavarian house painter, I should say. So if the, if, if, if the standard is what works for you, well, I mean, I can justify just about anything I want, right? No, Christianity isn't true because it works for you. It works for you because it's true. And those, you may think that's a distinction without a difference. That's a distinction with the biggest difference in the freaking universe, guys. Didn't we earlier on the show talk about what worked for Kermit Gosnell? Yes, yeah. Yeah, and what the utilitarian says is the the least amount of suffering for the most amount of joy. Well, I don't know. I'm certainly glad. I, I bet you there's a whole bunch of people that were cast out in India because of the caste system there that for, for how many decades were, were happy that Mother Teresa decided that she was going to reject 
utilitarian ethics to be the hands and the feet of the gospel to them. Yeah, and um, uh, it kind of you know conveniently glosses over the, the whole thing about who gets to decide what's good. Oh and yes, bad and, yeah. Uh, that that seems a little bit problematic. But I thought no, we don't, don't even answer. I don't want to be judgmental. We, we, we had Darwinism first, so might makes right, strong majority oh, just the rules. Strongest. Okay, yeah, the gotcha. smartest, most yeah. enlightened make all the decisions. We, since we had Darwinism first, natural selection, whoever's prettiest, smartest, richest, most accomplished, they decide who lives and who dies, and who what what is worthy and what is not. You, we, natural well, selection's well, already answered that for us. Sucks to be sucks to be uh, anybody on the short end of that stick. Sorry. Absolutely it does. In America, yes. that's the U.S. Supreme Court, right? Yeah. Right now it is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So now that we have created a completely random, subjective moral standard by which to govern ourselves, when, when, when we have differences and arguments, when people say, well, I like my subjective standard more than yours, and, and well, why can't my might make rights make, make right over your might make rights? How do we settle these disputes? How do, how do moral subjectivists settle their disputes? Well, they pretend that they don't exist. And that gets us to our next spot on the cultural devolution flowchart, syncretism. The blending of two or more belief systems into an existing system with the intent of creating a new system. Or it can be a belief system or several belief systems becoming absorbed into another one considered more culturally popular or superior for the purpose of building consensus. Do you want to know who the number one syncretist in the world is right now? Pope Francis is. He's doing this masterfully. He'll spend weeks and months promoting progressive ideology. And then, right when he's about to lose every totters and in the church, he'll then tweet, abortion is murder. You'll get one of those. Tell me I'm wrong, Todd. Oh. You'll get one of those. He had the best abortion, anti-abortion sign maybe Ever. I agree. And I mean that recently. But, yeah. uh, but now that but, you're all back on the, back on the bandwagon. Now here's the bad butts. Yeah. I said the good butt before, now the bad butts. You get, you're going to get three more weeks about to uh, get rid of the internal combustion engine, yeah. uh, virtue signaling. This is exactly this is, right. This is syncretism, is what this is. And this is the idea of creating something that is popular and culturally chic and cool that you can essentially just coexist. Oh, damn, why didn't we think about that? You know, tell you what. Jordan is considered like the most modern Arab country in the world. And their queen, is it, what's her name, Noir or whatever? I can't, she's gorgeous. And King Abdullah seems to be a pretty cool dude, okay? And Amman is, you know, the state-of-the-art jewel of the Arab world. So here we do. Or here, here's my challenge. Um, middle of broad daylight on a weekday, walk down the streets of Amman, Jordan, scream out, coexist, and we all worship the same God and see what happens. Just make sure your life insurance is paid up. Find out if you can get Kevlar through TSA. And, and ask, ask around about what the Second Amendment policy is, what they think is self-defense in Jordan. Because you're going to want to preemptively know, need to know all three of those things. Because homie ain't playing this. Okay, This is what we're doing nowadays, though. Um, there's, a, there's a religion that's, that it has, been, has grown some in popularity called Baha'i. You guys ever heard of it? Mm-hmm. And it essentially says everything is true which means that basically insults everybody. It claims tolerance by insulting everyone. So the Muslim says that Jesus wasn't even crucified and was the son of Mary, not the son of God. The Christian says my entire faith is predicated on the fact he was crucified and raised from the dead. But other than that, I think we have a lot in common, guys. You're not worshiping the same God. Now, the Christian and the Muslim can both be wrong, but they can't both be right. They can both be wrong, but they cannot be right. 
when one person's religion is centered on who Jesus Christ is, and the other person's religion is primarily centered on rejecting who Jesus Christ is not. When the Moors conquered Jerusalem during the Crusades, and they built the Dome of the Rock over the Temple Mount, they carved words into the... Now, you won't be able to see them because you're an infidel, so you can walk in there and look. But they carved something into the ceiling on the inside of the, te- of, of, of the Dome of the Rock. Do you know what the words are in Arabic? God has no son. Those were the words they carved. God has no son. But you're right. We're all worshiping the same God here. We're not. Now, we don't have to worship the same God to share a planet, but it makes it much harder to share a planet if we don't acknowledge the truths that, you know, the planet ultimately, that that we differ on. We can't find common ground if we don't admit where we actually disagree, okay? But the point of all of these is to set the stage for the final stage. And I think we're, we're in the syncretistic world now. We are going into the final stage of cultural devolution, which is secular humanism. And you can just basically choose and do whatever you want. That, that's kind of the short version. And here's the problem with secular humanism, though. It never lasts. It really just sets the stage for what the next transcendent worldview that will take over a culture will become. And, and in Europe, you've seen this. Europe has gone through, Western Europe has gone through this entire seven-stage process. They're, we're about a quarter of a century behind them. We're going into the secular humanistic stage. They're coming out of it. And you're looking, if you look across Europe, do you see what worldview is replacing secular humanism? Islam. Islam. The next transcendent worldview. Don't forget to click subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. Leave us a five-star review if you like our show. If you don't, you know, maybe don't lie, but don't say anything either because it would hurt our feelings. But if you do like our show, five-star reviews are appreciated on the podcast. Thank you to all our subscribers here at The Blaze and CRTV. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show, John 317. This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network.